thank you, Rachel and the praise team. Wonderful. Paul is in Japan this morning on a long-awaited trip, so he needs a, a good break after last weekend. It was a busy weekend last weekend for us, for you too. So good morning. Good to have you here. Good to see you back this week. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to emotional stress. And I kind of don't think you are either. Giving his life away for the gospel landed him into all kinds of tough and difficult situations. And as he writes a short letter to the church at Philippi, he's in jail, he's in prison. And yet all he can talk about through the book is joy. See, living with stress and joy, we need that skill, don't we? That would be an amazing skill to have. So I'm excited this morning to launch our series through the book of Philippians. When we wrap up this series, may we all live with stress and joy. I can't do anything about the stress, but maybe we can do something about the joy. But that's just one reason to dig into this letter in 2023. There's a foundational question I have to ask as we begin, as we do in every series. Why study Philippians? And why now? Why are we going to take a chunk of this year to go through these four chapters? There are three reasons why. Number one is because it's a short book. Hey, it's not long. Let's be honest. I have some travel coming up. We leave for Israel a week from tomorrow. And woohoo! And it's a little easier to, to passel out. What's the Texas word? This is my seminary days. Parcel. Well, that's not what two saints said. Never mind. We can divide up the preaching a little bit better if it's through a book. Because some of these series, you know, are a little nebulous, unless you're me. So it, it's better that way. So, and I promise we will not do this one backwards, which makes it a little easier as well. And yet, even though the letter is short, it does cover a lot of Christian doctrines. And so as we work our way through these four chapters in the next couple of months, three months, we'll be introduced to some great truths about the Savior. The person and work of Christ is in this book. The justification by faith, the second coming, how we grow in Jesus, it's all there. Second reason is because this book shows the relational side of our faith. It's short and it'll be easy to go through with multiple preachers, but we're going to learn how Paul related to his opponents, whether they were inside the church or outside the church. And so we're going to discover how to deal with cantankerous Christians. They do exist. But the important thing uh, then of, of unity in the body of Christ. Third reason is because this book teaches us how to find joy in the midst of pain, which we all need joy. And this is perhaps the area where Philippians touches life at its raw points. We're going to discover how to deal with, with, with people. We're going to live, we're, we're going to see that we live in a world that's full of trouble and heartache. It's not going away. 
So often we, can, we see this trouble that we begin to ask, God, what are you doing in this world? Philippians doesn't answer the final answer about the problem of pain and suffering in the world. But it does point us to the direction of finding a genuine Christian response to that pain and suffering. And as we read these four chapters, Paul tells us in, in different ways that while we cannot control what happens to us, we can control our response to those things. I mean, children die, cars crash, good men go to jail, and people gossip and marriages break up, and people lie about their behavior. That's, we live in a fallen world. That's the nature of this, this life. But we have a choice about how to respond to those heartaches in life. And that's why I want to explore this letter again. Some of you are thinking to yourself, didn't we just do that? That's what I thought. Well, it was the year 2000 that we last went through Philippians. So I think we can probably do it every 23 years. It's not bad. <laughs> so that's the why of this study. Now I'm going to ask the other question, what? All right, what are the goals? What are we, what are we trying to get out of this? What do I want us to learn from our study in Philippians? There are, again, three things, because preachers do three things. <laughs> Number one, may we learn to practice biblical encouragement. That's what this letter's about. Sometimes, we tend to be light on praise and heavy on criticism. And in trying to keep people humble, we don't want to say too much nice about them, right? Because we might be, you know, don't want them to be proud. But Paul didn't think that way. Now, he wasn't afraid to rebuke them if it was necessary. Chapter 4, Euodia and Syndike, he rebukes them. But he was always looking for evidence of grace that he could see in people. And for the Philippians' believers, he thanked them and encouraged them for partnering together with the gospel. He talked about them partnering with, with him, with, by grace in his imprisonment. We're kind of in this together. He encourages them for their love and their prayers, for their progress and their joy in the faith. He expresses encouragement that they helped him out financially. And so in this book, we have to ask, are we more critical than we are encouraging? If so, then we need to listen to what the Spirit has to say. May we learn to practice biblical encouragement. Second thing I hope we learn is that we may see Jesus as the ultimate model of servanthood. It's no accident that he opens this book and he talks about not identifying himself as an apostle. He does that when he has to, when the people are like, eh, you're just, eh, and he has to reach down and place his authority up there. But he doesn't do that in Philippians. They're not questioning his authority. And so he doesn't need to remind them of that. We have him calling himself and their, their servants. That's how he opens it. And then you got the classic passage in, in Philippians 2 with, with Jesus in his humility and, and who did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. And so we have in Philippians, Jesus held up as the ultimate model of servanthood. So we should learn servanthood as we walk through this book. Follow the model. We should encourage one another. We should serve one another. Third, may we learn to pursue Jesus as the center of life. Because as we pursue Jesus as the center of our life, 
What's the consequence? The consequence is going to be this durable, long-lasting joy. Because Paul wrote this letter while under arrest in Rome. He's been deserted by most of his friends. He's almost forgotten. A lot of churches have forgotten him. And yet he writes with joy and rejoicing is there in this letter. And why did Paul have a joy in a place and at a time in his life like this that was hard? The better question is, why do so few of us have joy in affluent modern America? What was Paul's secret? What was the key that he found? I think the answer is simple. He filled himself up with Christ. He was about Jesus the whole of his life because joy flows from knowing Christ. And he will say that over and over in this letter. So may we learn to know Jesus. May we learn to pursue Jesus as the center of our life. We can learn those three things. Yeehaw. So let's look at the, uh, the, the peninsula. How about the Philippian backstory? As we look at the book of Philippians, there are two dates that you need to keep in mind. 51 and 61 A.D. 51 A.D. and 61 A.D. Okay? The first date is approximately when Paul showed up for the first time in the city of Philippi. The second date is 10 years later when they are receiving and he has sent this letter of thanks that he wrote to them. By AD 61, he's under this some sort of house arrest. He is being watched, he says, by the Praetorian Guard, this select uh, group of Roman soldiers. He's evidently chained to one guard all of the time, and yet he can still have visitors, he can have guests come, and, and so he can preach and teach while still in prison. Now, when the Philippian believers hear of this predicament in jail, they decide, well, we could do something to encourage him. And so they took up an offering, and they sent it with Epaphroditus from Philippi to Rome. When he gets to Rome, Epaphroditus gets sick, very sick. And the Philippian church hears about it, and they're all concerned. So after he gets well, Paul wants to write and thank them for the gift and for sending Epaphroditus. And so he writes them a quick thank you note. Well, quick, four chapters. It's the book of Philippians. He sends that back with Epaphroditus to thank them. It's kind of like a brief thank you. Well, I keep using that word brief. It ain't that brief for a thank you note. But the tone of this book is spontaneous. It's warm and personal. He uses the word joy or rejoice 14 times in 104 verses. There's not a lot of controversy in this, in this book. But there are some theological issues which we are going to have to tackle and understand that are difficult. For example, he says, Jesus emptied himself. It's like, okay, what does that mean? Well, I don't even think I'm preaching that passage, so good luck, Andrew. <laughs> or Bruce, I can't remember. I think it's Andrew. You better deal with that one. I'll, I'll, I'm here to back clean up, folks. If he does it wrong, I'll fix it. I'm just kidding. The other thing he says is work out your own salvation. Wait a minute. That salvation was by grace, and now he's telling you to work out your own salvation. That should set off some alarm bells. Well, we'll wrestle with it when we get there. There'll be time. But that's, the, that's kind of the backstory of Philippians. We're going to start this morning by looking at the history 
of the city. This is, some of you will love this, others of you, maybe not so much, but I think it's important that we understand what's going on in the city and the culture and the climate to which this letter was written. There were about 420 years between the founding of this city and when this letter arrives at Philippi. It was founded as a village called Crenides. Crenides means springs. It was well protected by some couple of rivers. There's some high mountains around it, so it could grow. Philip of Macedon comes and captures the city for Greece, for the, you know, the republic there. And he comes and probably comes and attacks it because of its gold and silver mines. So he fortifies it, and in great humility, he names it after himself. <laughs> Philip of Macedon, so it becomes Philippi. Philip's son tends to want to conquer things, so he goes out and basically conquers the world, probably using the gold and the silver from Philippi to do so. His name was Alexander, as in Alexander the Great. And so that's kind of the, the, the thing that's going on in Philippi. About 230 years before Paul's letter was written, Rome conquers. They want that. They want the gold. They want everything. So they come and they conquer Philippi. About 100 years before Paul writes the letter, Rome comes in the, in the person of Mark Antony and Octavian, later Caesar Augustus, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, they come and they attack in a very famous battle I'm sure you've all heard about because you love ancient Roman history, the Battle of Philippi. And so um, Mark Antony and Octavian, they defeat Brutus and Cassius. You know right away who those two people are. They're the murderers of Julius Caesar. And they beat them at the Battle of Philippi. That made this city very famous. And so, therefore, a lot of army veterans retired there. And when they retired there, they were given parcels of land as part of their retirement. And all of that brought Philippi into the place of, of, on the status of being a Roman colony. That's important. When you're a Roman colony, then, like the laws of, I don't know, Philippi County, don't matter to you. The only laws that matter are the laws that are, that are in place in Rome. And if you're a citizen of Philippi, you automatically possess Roman citizenship. That's a big deal. No local governing people can tell you what to do. It's only Rome. And along with that came tax exemptions and the status of being a Roman citizen. The status, the tax stuff's great. The Roman citizenship, man, I'm a Roman citizen. It contained great value and pride. So even though cultures are mixed in the city, they are fiercely loyal to Rome. And in Philippi, you have these, these springs, unknown springs to us. You've got the gold and the silver mines. You've got this battle between the defenders of the republic and the founders of the empire. And so they are clearly on the side of the empire. And into that history comes the gospel. And this is actually where the story gets very odd. How does the gospel come to Philippi? It's a church that had rather odd beginnings. 
And to understand this church, you've got to go back to the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 16. We start there. I'm going to read the text. You can follow along on the map and see the places if you can. Well, I can read them. Good for me. I can't get them any bigger. So I guess I should work with a graphic artist to make them bigger. But, and that's for another day. So Acts chapter 16, let's start at verse 6, get the setting. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of, of Mycenae, on the map, I believe, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, Greece, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. He understands this vision as a call of God to go to Greece, to go to Macedonia, Macedon. And so with that, he leaves immediately with Luke, Silas, and his young protege, Timothy. I forgot to say, this is the second missionary journey of Paul. He makes three, and this is the second one, and they've been preaching all in the rest of Turkey, and they come to this point, and so they move on. Acts 16, verse 10. I read that one already. Verse 11. From to Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis. I didn't put those on the map. They're on the coast of Greece. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. The first city that they minister to in Greece, in Europe, is Philippi. And what intrigues me is to consider what Paul has in mind as he looks back on those early days of ministry in Philippi. What does he write? In the book of Philippians, he writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine, for you are all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. How did, what did the first day look like? How was this church planted? Verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. It says something that these missionaries, basically Jewish missionaries from Jerusalem, they went looking for a synagogue, and what do they find? They find a woman's Bible study. That's it. So there's no Christian presence in Philippi, and there's not a very large Jewish presence in Philippi. If there were enough Jews there, if they could get 10 men, they could have had a synagogue. There's no synagogue. Paul always went to the Jew first and then to the Greek. He went to the synagogue to preach and then spread out from there. But Philippi was so Roman 
there were not even enough Jewish males to constitute a place of worship. And so they come, they're looking for a place of prayer and they don't really find one. They come across this group of religious women having their own Sabbath service by the river. And in Acts 16, there are three people who stand out in the founding of the church at Philippi. The first is Lydia. Who's Lydia? Lydia, the businesswoman. She's from the city of Thyatira, which is in Turkey. She tells us, or this tells us that she's likely of, of Asian descent. She's not Greek. She has a house in Philippi. She's probably got a house in Thyatira. She's probably pretty wealthy. Both Thyatira and Philippi are major metropolitan areas. And the portrait you get of this woman is that she's in the fashion industry. She's a seller of purple. Think fashionista. She is essentially the CEO of her own empire. Thinking in today's terms, she probably has a house in LA and one in New York. She might even have one in Paris. This is a woman who has done very, very well for herself. This is a woman that's also what the Bible calls a God-fearer. Or she's, she's a woman who really is desiring God. She's listening to the teaching of the, of the Jews. She's trying to understand what it means to live a God-fearing life in the midst of her business. She wants to live out her faith in the context of her family and of her business. And this is the important point, I think, in the story of Lydia's conversion. She has, she's an intellectual woman. She's studying. By all indications, she's a seeker of God. And she's gathered with these women to study the scriptures. We'd call it a, what, a Tuesday morning Bible study. That's what they're doing, and then they're doing it on the Sabbath. And by listening to the Torah, she knows that God had given his people the Ten Commandments. She understands she doesn't do that really well, but she doesn't really know how to get right with God. She likely has some concept, some idea of the need for atonement or for covering. But without the good news of Jesus, she's confused. And into that setting, who shows up? Paul. And he starts to fill in the scriptural framework that she's been operating on up until this point. So you got a bunch of women doing Hebrew precepts class. Paul shows up and says, wait a minute, press pause. Let me explain to you what's really going on here. And as he begins to explain to this group that the law was revealed to teach us our need for sin, and now there's been a savior, made the, we can be made right through his death on the cross. You see, Paul engages Lydia's reason through her intellect. He tells her what's going on. He teaches her. And as he does, what happens? She becomes a believer in Christ. In fact, she immediately believes, and she's immediately baptized. And her whole household, they get saved. And she invites them to come stay at her house. Now, I'm guessing she probably has a decent place. She's a good businesswoman. For Paul, the, the bivocational missionary tent maker, this is probably a very sweet deal. He can go, see, go stay with her in her home, but it probably doesn't last too long. So the church begins with the conversion of the high society businesswoman Lydia, intellectually engaging with the gospel. But from here, the story gets a little more 
complex. It's very diverse, this church that God is planting. The second person is a slave girl. Read Acts 16, verse 16. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. True or false? True. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. This little girl is the complete opposite of Lydia. Lydia's Asian. This girl is Greek. Where Lydia was in control with a keen intellect, this girl is poor. She's enslaved. She's being exploited by the people around her. Where Lydia was a seeker of God, what's this, what's this little girl? She's demon-possessed. Now, she is proclaiming the way of salvation, but it's not under her own control. It's under demonic control. So she probably believes salvation is available in the same way the demons believe and tremble. And while Paul and Lydia meet in the context of a formal Bible study, this girl just follows them, screaming her head off through the city of Philippi. She's disruptive. As much in control as Lydia is, this little girl is out of control. Paul doesn't turn around and say, I'm doing a seminar on Saturday. It's on crazy. And I think you may be qualified on crazy. Why don't you come? He doesn't invite her to a Bible study. He doesn't appeal to her on her intellectual level. He doesn't even appeal to reason. She's irrational. Instead, in an act of the power of the Holy Spirit, he rebukes her and, and he exercises that spirit that rules her and enslaves her on the inside. And in an instant, she finds the salvation as she's freed from, from this demonic mocking. The contrast between these two is stark. With Lydia, the gospel gets at her heart when Paul engages her intellectually. With this little slave girl, the gospel gets at her heart when Paul engages her spiritually. Get the demon out. In both instances, the result seems to be a new birth and repentance. See, the deliverance of the gospel takes on the context by their personal need. Paul shows how, how um, as a missionary, he's willing to do all things to all people to reach them. But the initial conversions, they're not done yet. There's the slave girl, there's the, there's the, the businesswoman. Third, there's the blue-collar Joe. The deliverance and conversion of this possessed slave girl is exciting. But this, this is not over yet. Verse 20, or verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money were, was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. 
After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, what does he do? He put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Stocks, you're thinking 17th century or 68th, whatever, Plymouth, you know, and, the, and, the, and that's not what those sto these stocks are. What you have in the first century is contorting the prisoner's body in some way that is very painful, and they just leave them that way. They would seize up in pain and just be left. Now, the jailer was not commanded to do this. He voluntarily, apparently, did this. So he's not a very nice man. And he's very good at his job. He probably likes it more than he should. When it comes to taking pride in your work, this is who this guy is. Acts 16, 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, if you hate the gospel, who's the most frustrating person you've ever met? Paul. Didn't matter what you did to Paul. He loved God, and he continued to show it in every way possible. We see Paul's gospel fixation echoed through this letter. He's the man who's, gonna, who's going to say, well, to die is gain. Okay, fine, then we'll torture you. And he says, well, I don't count the present suffering as worthy to be compared to the future glory. I mean, if you kill him, he's happy. If you torture him, he's happy. You can't win with a guy like this. If you want to kill him, he's cool with it. If you want to make him suffer, he's cool with that because it's going to make him more like Jesus. If you want to let him live, he's fine with that because to live is Christ. Whatever you do to me, you cannot conquer him. You cannot beat him. And in response to that bold faith in a hostile place, the Romans put him in jail. They locked him in the stocks. It basically says, okay, that's fine. I'm just going to sing while we're doing this. You, you do your thing, and I'm going to pray and sing. And while he and Silas are singing and praying, something happens. Verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. Okay, this is, this is another very unique conversation. The jailer, he's not like the first two people we've met. He's this basic ex-GI, apparently, blue-collar worker. He's not interested in, in bantering like two intellectuals. He's not really invested in, in the charismatic hoopla of getting demons cast down and all that. He didn't care. He's just a guy who wants to put in his time, go home, have a beer with his wife, and, and just live his life. Probably not a guy thinking a lot about the meaning of life. He wants to do his job well. He wants to honor his imperial employees, employers and get back to his well-ordered house. On the scale of Lydia to slave girl, he's not really rich and he's not really poor. He's probably like right in the middle. But how does the gospel grasp him? 
in Rome during this period of time, if a prisoner has escaped or was lost, whoever was responsible for them paid for it with their life. Like a lot of blue-collar Joes today, this jailer had come to identify his life with his job. Therefore, if my prisoner escapes, I'm going to kill myself. We'll pick up the story. Verse 27. I don't know. We read that one already. Um, Verse 28. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. We haven't run away. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? How did the gospel get to that guy's heart? It got to his heart when he engaged with a living miracle to witness. He saw Paul. He heard him probably singing and praising. And then when the prison was open, he stayed put. He's like, nobody would do that. That's selflessness. After becoming free, they just didn't take the opportunity to escape. With revenge right in front of them, they stayed to share the gospel. And this jailer is blown away. They replied, believe, how do you be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. The founding of the church in Philippi begins with a Jewish fashionista, a businesswoman, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a blue-collar, probably retired military guy who was duty-bound to the Roman Empire. That's probably not a dream team that you would draft if you were planting a church. They are the unlikeliest people. They are the most diverse people. But that's who God moved in to plant the church at Philippi. In the backstory of Acts 16, you see this beautiful reconciliation that the gospel can achieve. Not only unholy people to a holy God, but people who are on the surface totally incompatible with each other. They're brought to each other, and the church begins. Jesus is taking strangers and making them family. This new community, back finally to the book of Philippians. Not back like we were ever really there. But with that background... And these three people in your mind, think about what Paul means when he writes in verse 8 of chapter 1. God can testify how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Because you hear his heart in that moment. Because at a minimum, he's talking about Lydia. He's talking about this little slave girl. He's talking about the jailer when he says, I thank my God in verse 4 of every time I remember you. These are the people among others that he's remembering. I mean, by the time he writes this, how old is this little girl? What sort of woman has she grown up to be? What has Lydia done with her business to impact the world with the gospel? 
And what about the jailer? Has he kind of softened his rough edges? But see, Paul knows this church. He had presented Christ and they believed under his ministry. He baptized them. He was the conduit through which the Holy Spirit was poured out in this city. And he watched the gospel spread in a place like Philippi. And he knows very well the gospel is not hindered by socioeconomic status. It's not going to be hindered by the racial status in this church. There aren't going to be religious walls that you can build up as fallen human beings to stop the gospel. Paul sees the gospel, it defies race. It defies class. It defies status. It defies even aptitude. And if we're honest, we would admit that we like to do people, we like to do life with people like us. We live in neighborhoods and associate with people who look like us and act like us. We go to church. A lot of times they, people look like us. But in reality, the only thing that binds us together, the only thing we have alike is our faith in Christ. And what I love about Peninsula is that we don't all look alike. We don't all sound alike. Some of you, English isn't even your 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 basic language. Why is that so refreshing? Because what the gospel does in our lives is not natural. So what we find here and in Philippi is not natural either. And as we see in the odd beginnings of the Philippian church, the, the gospel blows the doors of our tiny little community and it creates a community that could never have been formed without the gospel. Were it not for the gospel, what would we really share in common? We don't all have the same tongue. We don't all have the same politics. That might shock some of you, but we don't. We don't even all have the same theology. But apart from the supernatural reconciling ministry of grace, rich fashionistas, slave girls who were once demon-possessed, and regular G.I. Joe types are now sharing a ministry of reconciliation together. That doesn't just happen. But because Paul was willing to put some skin into the game, risking his own life to bring the message of life in Christ, what was once divided is now united in love. Apart from that supernatural work, it doesn't happen. This is the kind of thing that brings Paul his boldness to sing and pray even in jail. This supernatural community is a clear picture of the gospel's effects among us. He sees the gospel going out. He has seen this happen across the Roman Empire. And it bears fruit within people as, he, as, he, as they move forward. And he really sees this growing and bearing fruit and creating a new reality that deepens our understanding of the world and our place in it. The church of Philippi was founded by three different types of people. And how did Paul reach them? He reached the religious 
with a focus on spiritual conversations and leading them to present the gospel. He reached the rejected by figuring out how to get up close and personal. How do you deal with their, their needs? He reached a regular guy just by living out his faith and doing so with joy in the midst of trauma. So are we asking God for opportunities for spiritual conversations? Are we trying to get close to unbelievers and provide them some care? Are we simply trying to live out our faith with some joy? That's where Paul's going in this book. He remembers the powerful conversions that he's experienced. He remembers his own as a persecutor of the church on his way to Damascus to kill some believers. He's ready, ready and able to find people wherever they are, rich or poor, healthy or sick. And he's not just blowing some religious smoke here. At the roots of the Philippian church plant is Paul's deep desire to worship God and put Christ in the center of his life even in the midst of a difficult situation of being in stocks in a Roman jail. And I think it's very subtle, but he reminds them, you remember those days, but now you've got this letter. Not much has changed. I'm still in jail. And yet I write to you from a prison to my friends in Philippi. Remember those days? And what God did, what's he going to do now? That's the question we have to face. Let me pray. Father, let us see our lives in a way that, and, and let us answer, ask the questions, that how can we focus on spiritual conversations? How can we figure out a way to get close and provide care for people? How can we simply live out our faith with joy that we might be in a place where we can impact this world, whether people are religious or rejected or just regular guys and girls, that we might change our world. Help us as we walk through Philippians to see that and grow in that aspect of life. In Jesus' name, amen.